sometimes humor might be a good way to start, sometimes not, but as I was sitting here watching everybody come on board, I had a memory come up, and uh, when I was young I remember, and uh, in the States, and they still have it, one of the cheapest ways to travel actually, it's the Greyhound bus or coach service that goes all around the country. So it's the cheapest, but of course it's the longest and most indirect and makes every milk stop between you know the West Coast and the East Coast and everything in between. But the advertisement was, it had this kind of big friendly, you know, American bloke was comes on on the TV screen and he kind of turns to the camera, you know, the people are on board and he looks right at you and he says, it's such a comfort to take the bus and leave the driving to us. And so I kind of think of Ajahn Amaro and I up here being like the coach drivers. <laughs> so all you do is get on board, drive along, and what a comfort, you just kind of ride along. But I was also thinking that it's not a free ride. <laughs> Everybody is being charged high fees <laughs> to take this ride. And the high fees are really what's important, is it? What I mean by this, if, we, if, if I, or you and I, uh, reflect as we do this evening puja and listen to the words like the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha is my excellent refuge. For me, there is no other refuge. And the, 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 the depth and the power of those words. Now, not all of us here may feel that or be uh, necessarily consider ourselves a Buddhist, but that it brings up the element of trust, of faith, of that ability to put uh, our uh, trust and uh, uh, to give something up to something bigger or larger than oneself. And that's what's significantly important. And so as we are uh, reflecting and practicing, learning about how to be more present with uh, having a body and being uh, human and with this predicament of birth, of aging, illness, and death, that uh, one can begin to reflect that maybe I do need some, not outside help, but more internal help. And uh, we do need outside help, like in a way we can say the community here is giving us outside help. The uh, monastic sangha is providing the, uh, the vehicle. This is the bus, isn't it? Come in and park our cars or take the taxi, get assigned our room, where we stay, tell us where to be and when, when the meals are, you know, when you can sleep, when you can eat, a little bit of free time, make some choices, and so everything's set up to give us a structure to learn, to grow, to deepen uh, uh, one's awareness of, of these teachings. So everything there is, is set up. But I know in Thailand, having lived in Thailand uh, 13 years, and, and maybe other Asian Buddhists, and it might be uh, part of 
some people's thinkings here that like I was sitting with a woman over in the cloister and looking up at the, the highest sphere of the temple building. And so people may put the monastic community like at that highest peak. So there's the monks and nuns like way up there and I'm just a lowly layman down here, you know. Can I ever, ever hope to aspire to that highest level? And and so with uh, the deepening of our practice and our commitment, that height begins to lower. And it doesn't really lower. It's like we begin to rise ourselves up. we kind of lifting ourselves up more to aspire to those heights. And of course, it's only a relative way of speaking. But everything we're doing, we're kind of lifting ourselves up to sit, to be energized, and, and to... Uh, bring forth uh, intention of integrity and uh, to practice well, to practice insightfully. Uh, the, the the sangha is those so that that's not you don't have to be in robes, have a shaven head, to be uh, uh, one who does these practices in insightful and uh, direct and uh, ways that this is uh, the responsibility of each of us. So in traditional cultures, Buddhist cultures often they think, well, it's the job of the monks. All I do is, you know, put food in the bowl, you know, offer the dana on, you know, for a remembrance of my, of my loved ones who have passed on and, uh, you know, go to, the, go to the monastery once a month, once a week, whatever, and I'm good. And uh, like in America, I'm all set. You know, like on the East Coast, it's an expression, you know, you offer some, I'm all set, you know, but everybody's not really all set. They think they are, but like, I have everything, I'm okay, I'm good, I'm good, huh? Good to go. Good to go. And yet we're really not good to go, are we? Are you ready to go right now? Breathe in, as you breathe in, that's it. The end of that breath, you're gone. You breathe out, the end of the out breath, gone. Are you ready? Let's do it. <laughs> me first. <laughs> Give me the sword, I shall. <laughs> That's it, isn't it? It's like, you first, and then I'll see. <laughs> that reminds me, is a wonderful... And I tell this story, and I, and I, I actually heard the story in different versions, but I first heard it here when I was at the senior monk at Harnham. And this was a woman from, from uh, Doncaster. And, and she was kind of, she was very melodramatic and, and quite um, dramatic in many ways. She was a lovely person, and, but I would be very, not be shy. And I think people in the north are kind of less shy, they're kind of like, hang it all out. That's what I liked when I went up there. You know, I was like, I kind of re- relate to that a bit better. But she talked about going into this church, the alcove, and there was the, the little uh, um, announcements and what have you. And there was a little cartoon there. And some of you may have heard this, but it's, it's a wonderful. And she, because she says, this describes how I'm feeling. And so, so in the cartoon, of course, there's the, the, first, the first drawing is a man, I believe, you know, on a precipice, on a cliff, holding on with one hand to this branch, you know, and kind of like the abyss is down there and hanging on, and so there's nothing on the, uh, on the, uh, in the caption. And the next one, he's like still 
tangling in this desperate look on the face. And he screams, the caption is, Is there anybody out there? Next caption is, just silence, he's still hanging, kind of waiting. Next caption is, Is there anybody out there? And then the next caption is, Yes. And he says, Who is it? He said, The Lord. He says, Help! And the Lord says, Let go. And then the final caption, Is there anybody else out there? (laughs) I'm glad I got a laugh on that. It's a good one. I told it pretty good, didn't I? But it's so lovely. And she said, this is how I feel. You know, it's like I'm looking for, you know, I know I had to let go, but I really don't want to let go. And so, you know, I want to have my cake and eat it. So it's so expressive of how you and I can, can feel and the reluctance that we ultimately, within ourselves, we know. And the reason I know it, we know back in 1969, I was a combat helicopter pilot in Vietnam. And we had several missions, and, and helicopters were very, it was a very, um, a time, I mean, Vietnam was a very complex, like any war is. And, but the helicopter had really come into its own as this whole air mobile concept. So the 1st Cavalry, which was the name of the division, was basically had the crossed sabers. So this was, they had been, and maybe you've seen that Wayward Soldiers once. Mel Gibson, I think, was in it as a colonel. Some of you may have seen the, the film. It was a very good film, actually. But it was, it was de- the development of this whole air mobile concept in a place like Vietnam, where it was very hard to get from point A and B. And, of course, horses were quite outdated. So the whole idea is that the horses were replaced with helicopters so that they could be uh, mobile via air so they could move large bodies of troops and, and extract them and insert them in a lot of different uh, places quite quickly and efficiently. And one of the, the uh, one day we'd been out in the, uh, what we call the area of operation, the AO, and we had troops on board and the particular unit I was in had a a platoon, which is probably about 35, 40 men. And we would have a, that platoon of infantry assigned. So if we had a downed helicopter, uh, then this, this platoon of troops would come in and secure the downed helicopter until we could evacuate those that were in the helicopter and secure it and things. So we were coming back. It was fairly late uh, in the day in the mission. It was growing dark. And our base camp, and it was very common, this is like during the monsoons, I was early in country, so it was probably around July or August, which is kind of the peak of the monsoon season. And flying in weather in a helicopter is uh, is quite is quite scary. I don't know how familiar with the hell you are with a helicopter, but even having been a helicopter pilot, I still kind of look at these things in amazement that it actually all works. You know, so I mean, you have these these different you know controls that. And they all have to be kind of coordinated for this thing to, to all work. And if any one of them goes, usually in a helicopter, if something goes wrong, 
then it's basically, it's all wrong. So, you know, if something happens, it's like you're going down, and it's like you're going down now. And you don't have like the fixed wing. You can kind of like glide for a while and find a place, a helicopter, it's boom, you're coming down. Well, I was the, 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 the co-pilot, and the, the aircraft commander was called the AC, the aircraft commander. So we were coming in, and the area was, what we say, socked in with a bad storm. So we couldn't get in, and we wanted to get in. We wanted to get back to the base and, and you know, get to what was home and uh, rest, which is one of the beautiful things about being in an aviation unit. And so Granger was his name. I don't remember his first name, but Granger was his last name. And um, he said, well, and I, they called me Cap. My last name was Capel, so they you know, shortened it, and I was a captain. So they kind of just shortened it to Cap. So everybody kind of called me Cap. So we were coming in, and he says, Cap, he says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to come, off, come out of altitude, come down to the road, which led right into the base camp, so you can follow the road in. And so the idea was that we would come out of altitude, come down to really close to ground level. And I mean, like, you know, like you could, like, throw me a, you know, a stick or something, the helicopter would be so low, it'd be, and that's what, and so the idea was that when we come out of altitude, come onto the road, he says, you turn on the searchlight or the landing light. Well, this searchlight is a very, like, imagine a big, powerful floodlight. So it gives you all this light when you're coming up to land, to uh, illuminate a landing zone. So we're coming out on altitude and we're coming down, coming along. We've got like 12, 15 guys in the back. And I think we were the first one to do it. So we were, well, we're going to lead everybody in, you know, kind of save the day. This is this AC's idea. So we're coming in and we hit the soup, which is the weather, you know, just right into the storm. I hit the searchlight and, and immediately, just to think about it, there's nothing but but kind of fog and rain. So what happened to the searchlight? You know, they hit hit the rain and fog and immediately came back into our eyes. And so one of the most, other than getting shot at, shot up, or shot down, uh, weather's pretty nasty. And and so uh, there's this thing called vertigo. The closest, if you've never been a pilot, you can come to vertigo, is think of a of a very dark road near your home. And maybe you've done it, maybe you did it when you were a kid. But I don't suggest doing it unless you're in a fairly safe road. But if you're on, it's pitch dark, pitch dark. There's no other lights. You're driving along, and then you turn out your car lights, but you keep driving for a short distance. So imagine that, and then of course you lose all reference, don't you? So imagine now the road. You no longer have the road. You're in the air, and there's no longer any reference. So how many directions can you go? So. He gets vertigo, and 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 the whole thing. If if one of the pilots gets vertigo, you have the other pilot take the controls, because you are not in your right senses. You want to maybe need to go left, but you really need to go right. So you're a dangerous pilot, a very dangerous pilot at that point. So when he gave me, he says, "Take it, Cap. You know, I'm I'm, I'm lost." So he gives me the controls, and I just remember the helicopter was shaking like this, and and I didn't have all my full instrumentation to kind of really know what what to do, but I didn't have vertigo, and so I instinctually, with my training, knew there was two things I had to do. So if you go into bad weather, 
you naturally just do a 180. So you've gone in this way, it was clear back here, you do a 180, complete turnaround and come back out. The problem is that we were already so low to the ground, we were in a very steep bank, and a helicopter doesn't like it if you go too far over, and there's kind of a point of no return. So he gives me the controls, he says, Cap, take it. I start to do what I felt was right, and then he says, no, and he started to grab it back, but I didn't let him have it, you know, I overpowered him because I knew, I mean, it was either him or I. So the world stopped. Everything stopped. And I remember it like it was just very, not long ago. I had the controls, the helicopter was shaking, but I was doing what I knew was right to bring us out of that. So not only did I need to do the 180 and bring it around, I knew I needed to get some elevation because we were already so close to the ground. But as I took the controls and started to do that, my world slowed to just like slow motion, almost stopped, and then I was just in this kind of space. It was almost like bathed in light, and I was just waiting for impact. Yeah. That this was it. I wasn't, there was no fear. There was nothing other than just, all right, this is it. Bam, I was there. Impact, that's probably it. So what happened, obviously I'm here, so. <laughs> we came around, we had gained altitude. We came out of the soup, out of the storm, and there were the stars. And you can imagine how beautiful those stars looked. <laughs> and, and so it was one of those, those moments, and I certainly call it a near-death experience, because it certainly was, and uh, the troops in the back afterwards were, like they said, they were holding it onto each other, because we were in such a steep bank, they were going to fall out, because we didn't have doors, we didn't use the doors on the helicopters. So I share the, the story because of the significance of what I believe, and I was talking with Ajahn about this, and, and we both agreed that even with this, this, the effort that we're making here in the context of this retreat to prepare for death, to do death rehearsal, to uh, uh, deepen our understanding, start to look at the body and our perception of this body in a different way as a skeleton, as a corpse, unpack it, look inside of it, whatever, that I firmly believe that within each of us there's a, a built-in system that will, that will help us at that moment. I don't know if that makes sense if I'm articulating. So in other words, let me just say it a little differently, that at the moment of death, that just like at the moment of birth, there's something conditioned into the human psyche, into the human spirit, the being, whatever, that will be there to facilitate you and I. Now, even with that, though, how much better, so say if the system by default is prepped, because it knows, the bones, the skin, all of that knows, that the body knows. It's you and I that don't know or don't want to know. But the body knows, just like the body knows if we cut, the body knows immediately starts sending all that, whatever it sends, to start to heal the wound, to close it up, to stop the bleeding. So the body is, 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 has a mind of its own. It's, it's an amazing um, uh, uh, organism. And so the psyche, the spirit, whatever one chooses to call it, 
knows as well. Because I saw that. I had never practiced Buddhism. You could say, well, you were a monk shortly after that. You probably, in the last life, you and I, Ajahn Amaro, were husband and wife. And, you know, you... <laughs> Ajahn Amaro has actually shared he has recollected that, you know. And he was actually the wife, I was the husband. He let me go into robes. He was very distraught, but I was very grateful. So now I'm repaying him. Even if we were to know something like that, that it's unlikely. In other words, I can't recollect that I have died in the past and therefore I have all this kind of tools, my tool, toolbox, like Ajahn was talking about, to prep myself for that moment. So I trust that. The question is, do you? Do you trust that? Or can you trust that? Or can you be open to the possibility of trusting that? And if you can, I would argue that you're kind of halfway there. Or maybe more than halfway. Because you and I definitely don't know when that moment is going to come. How much more prepared are we going to be, are you and I going to be, if we put effort into reflecting on these wonderful teachings, uh, reflecting on the contemplations that we can do, why we have life, why we have energy. Like in Asia, of course, it's like, oh, when I get old, and, and then I'll go to the monastery. And Ajahn Chah used to you know, talk, and the, they would, when they were young, they'd say, well, I want to have a family, so you have your family, and the kids get grown. And you know, when the kids are grown, you know. So then the kids get grown, and they have the grandkids. You know, so oh, I have to look after the grandkids. And the grandkids get grown, then they have the great-grandkids. So like, and then they say, well, maybe now it's time. So, you know, they're maybe 85, 90 years old, and they're going to come to the monastery and, you know, practice meditation at 85 or 90. And he would laugh. And, you know, the point is that one can procrastinate all these years and never make the effort. And, and to, to do what is necessary to... Um, elevate ourselves, just like when I started with the, the temple, like elevating ourselves, not in like reverence and we're going to be bowing to each other, but in that we have the ability to lift ourselves up with our practice, with our efforts to, to be uh, worthy of gifts, worthy of offerings, worthy of hospitality. Why? Because we can become noble people as well. And Kalyanamitta translates as noble friends. So I certainly see everyone here, this collective of people in this retreat together, that we are noble friends. We're not just, you know, kind of passing friends, that there's a nobility, uh, an elevated place in our consciousness that brings us here together, that wants to be in this moment, that wants to learn, to, to understand more deeply. And there's also, a, just as there's that, that, that mechanism within us, that is prepared for that, there's also something in us that, that will not settle for less than, you know, awakening. That is our, I believe, is our deepest and truest, you know, intention and desire is to really, to understand, to deeply know, what is this? Why? So we started like, well, the days and nights are swiftly, relentlessly passing. So this day has swiftly gone by. Here we are, it's 9.03. We started at about 6.03. So how many hours? That's 12, 15, is that right? 16 hours? 15, thank you, Ajahn. 
never was good at math. She used to teach me that when we were in. Uh, <laughs> so how well have we spent our time today? How well have I spent my time? How well have you spent your time? What have you learned when you're ready to put your head down tonight before you uh, fall asleep? Can you put it down? Can, are you contented with what you've done today? Are you contented with the way life is right now? And say, no, no, no. But even if it's no, it might have to be yes. Because like I said last night, that that last breath before you fall asleep, you may not wake up. So we don't know. And so each day is that opportunity to say, oh, that's why it's like how well, or the, the, the Thai really translates as what am I doing or what am I doing? How well am I spending my time? But Lao Tamalayu is really like, what am I doing? So we can ask that moment to moment, what am I doing? And we have duties, responsibilities to uh, loved ones, to, to children, to parents, relatives, whatever it is. But each thing can be an act of kindness, an act of awareness, and, a, and to bring understanding and, and all of those qualities that we develop in a situation like this and to be able to, to, to share them and be more and more prepared. So in that moment, and there were other moments, and there were other situations where um, there were close calls. I mean, like I, I, I said, when I first arrived in Vietnam, or like I've, I've shared with people in the past, is when I arrived, I had had about two, roughly two years of training. So there's two years of conditioning how to be a soldier, how to be an officer, and then how to be a pilot. So there's all this conditioning. It's like, this is what you do. This is how you handle it. These are the situations. These are the regulations. These are the mechanisms. All this kind of training. And, and everything is really, for the soldier, is to defend you know, to either go on the defensive or the offensive, as the case may be, whatever it is, it's like they get out, uh, you know, their guns and their weapons and all the stupid things that men primarily build and go out and kill each other. And well, it's never changed, has it? And so I arrive in Vietnam and, you know, fairly prepped, psyched, you know, all right, here it is, this is the real deal, combat, Vietnam, helicopter pilot, you know, fight for my country. And I wasn't like um, particularly, um, uh, um, what's the word I want? Thank you. Patri uh, you know, patri <laughs> patriotic. But, but I, and, and I didn't particularly believe in the cause, but I didn't disbelieve in it. So I thought, well, someone has to go. You know, I hadn't done well in, in my studies, uh, and, and so I, I, I went. So I arrive at my duty station, and I told I shared this on the retreat and the, uh, the weekend, the aging weekend, mindful aging weekend. So I arrive at my, um, the, the French had been in Vietnam before the Americans came and built these kind of French-type buildings, and so the Americans had just kind of moved into the airstrips and used the buildings and everything, and they used a lot of these buildings for headquarters and senior officers and all that. So I go into this little room waiting to meet the, the CO, the commanding officer, 
you know, you report in, salute, and get your assignment, and all this good stuff. So I went and I sit down, and I'm waiting. And right there on the board in front of me, like about where Sati Sati is sitting right there on the, on the board, just you know, about looking up at it, and it's got this chalkboard, this little tiny chalkboard. It's got KIA. And I know instinctively that KIA means killed in action. And there's two or three tick marks, you know, or slashes, you know, strokes. And I also intuitively knew that those were pilots. I don't know how, I just knew that. So KIA, three tick marks as it was, pilot, tick mark, get dead real quick. So my, I just, my whole world, I just was like shot with a bullet. And all my training and all my conditioning and everything just spiraled out of control. And, and if I hadn't been sitting, I might have had to sit because it, I went into like a vertigo type of, uh, uh, mental state where everything just fell out from underneath me. And what fell out was the rea- re- realization of the mortality of the body. And of course, we think my mortality or my body. So with the attachment, it makes it even more, the impact even stronger that, oh, I am a mortal. I will die. And so that for the first time in my life, and well, the second time, really, but the first time in such a significant way, that was just pushed right into my face, into my whole being. I just, just like a big wave just swept over me. And I knew. And... It might have been a few seconds, it might have been a little bit longer, but of course, what I'm going to do is say, well, you know what, instead of reporting for duty, I'm, you know, leaving. <laughs> Could you cut me some new orders, please? <laughs> Not going to happen. So, um, that, but that stayed with me. The impact of that stayed with me to the point where I began to really question what it was to be a human being, and that I was a soldier in combat, and that bullets were flying, people were dying, and that I could be one of those uh, people in a body bag to be sent home, and that I was very uh, distraught and very keen to find, well, what can I do about it? I knew I had to do my duty. It wasn't like really a question of like, well, let me out of here or desert or something. So it went inwardly. So I began to question and search within myself. Well, I don't really have a true spiritual refuge, a place of safety, a place where I can go within myself and feel safe. And so I sought that in Christianity, but Christianity had when I was a child, it kind of spoke to me in a childhood kind of way. But being a 22-year-old man and, and in the, the United States Army and stuff, there just there wasn't anything compelling. And so that, that kind of uh, momentum and that kind of the impetus that got started um, brought me to an image of the Buddha in one of the Thai, the Vietnamese villages. And I didn't know what it was. I just saw this very peaceful, serene image. And there was just such an intuitive attraction to it. And I thought, that I, I'm really attracted to that. What is that? So I bought one. 
I bought this, and it was an, like an Indian, and some, I'm sure some of our Sri Lankan friends have seen these. It's a, I know it was Indian because it was very, it was very androgynous. In other words, it, it was definitely it was male, but also had a very feminine quality to it. And it was soft and gentle, yet it was very, you know, powerful. And so I want to know about that. So it wasn't until I went to Thailand that I could start to get some books and start to study. And so thus began my my uh, uh, journey to uh, into Buddhism. And so everything I began to read and understand as I read that this was, I want to learn about this, I want to study this, how do I do that? And so it wasn't until I went back to stateside and decided that I would get out of the military on what they uh, called a conscientious objector discharge. And of course, because the Vietnam War was so controversial, um, they were letting uh, primarily men in those days. Um, you could get out of conscientious objector discharge. I called it CO for short, and then but many uh, men were fleeing to Canada, and that was, they were eventually pardoned and let back in the country. But people were very the country was very torn about this war, and so I was kind of the perfect case to be let out because I had done training, I had served, I had, I had been in Vietnam, so it wasn't like I was trying to avoid combat. So it was just kind of the red, a red tape kind of procedure, and I received an honorable discharge, and during that period I said, well, yes, Buddhism, if I'm going to study it, then I have to go back to Thailand. So it all just kind of fell into place for me. So within about a year from being a soldier in Vietnam uh, to arriving in Bangkok, to become a monk, a, a novice monk, was approximately a year. So it's, it's, it's quite interesting for me to reflect on that. And here I am in South Vietnam, and so where I was stationed in Vietnam was not that far from, you can draw a line, and it's, you know, I, I, I'd be surprised if it's, you know, much further than, like, say, from here to Edinburgh or something, you know, not very close. So it's very, and of course at that time, Ajahn Sumedha was, you know, the only Western monk with Ajahn Chah, you know, just a few hundred miles away studying there. So it's interesting how all of these things bring us to, uh, together. And the, the, the interconnectedness of our lives. Uh, and it's quite wonderful, uh, as it is for me to be here, have this opportunity, and to be sharing with you. So I tell these stories because... Their significance, I think, is, you know, not to me to, you know, kind of boast about war and I'm a war hero or whatever, but that these are realities that we all face. And I'm sure there's more than, there's at least a few people here that have either had a near-death experience or been around uh, experiences that of uh, close loved ones and things that have, uh, have died or maybe in the process of dying. And so no one uh, is 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 free from this, and the the really the the challenge is that how you and I prepare not only for the death of this body, but the death of the bodies that those we hold near and dear. And for some of us, that's even harder. Like, well, what will they do without me? You know, why, why, how will they fare? You know, my children. Uh, my parents, uh, what, whatever it is. And these are really kind of pressing questions. And so what the, what's pressing about them is that, that how, 
how well uh, I am prepared to to let to let go, and have I taken care of of business? And so it's a, the, the the tendency is usually like, oh, okay, get diagnosed with a, a life-threatening illness. After the diagnosis, oh, I have to get my affairs in order. So you know, maybe you haven't done a will. You put a will together. You put all, you know, a trust together. I mean, the, the, this is part of just kind of practical preparation to have these things in place, as it can be quite, you know, quite messy. But I think for peace of mind and for that 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 worldly affairs, that it's important for each of us to reflect on these things and to make a preparation. And I know it's it's it's. I think it's the people avoid it because when, when when I if I make a will, which Catherine and I did not too long ago, within the year, and we procrastinated it for a long time for various reasons. But there's something about the reality. It's like making a will, drawing up a will, says, "Wow, I'm acknowledging that there will come a day where there will be a will reading, and as far as I know, I won't be there." <laughs> <laughs> and so, how do I want that will to look? And so, tomorrow we're going to to start uh, with some, you know, more kind of poignant questions for all of us to reflect on. We want to kind of, we want to kind of up the ante a little bit, you know, kind of tighten tighten the notch a little bit for everybody and, and us included uh, to to those things that. Uh, maybe many of us think about or have already thought about or afraid to think about, but know that we should think about and do something about. So in one's practice, in my practice, say, that this body is is a daily teaching. The mind is a daily teaching. And the more that I can tune in to that, pay attention to that, that uh, the, the the freer I can become, the potential to be freer, uh, to that is is created. And I love when we uh, reflect say, on the Dhamma and the uh, attributes or because none of the Dhamma, when I first studied Buddhism, I was uh, reading Buddhist texts and, and so I'd, I'd read about the Buddha, the only enlightened one, the all-knowing, the perfected one and all the attributes of the Buddha. I'd say, okay, you know, historical figure, he was an enlightened being and all this. And then it had come to the Dhamma and it would kind of give some indicators and stuff, but not, I mean, it wasn't as concrete. It just wasn't as accessible as like Buddha. And then come to Sangha. Now, oh, this is the order of monks, you know, the enlightened ones, all that follow the Buddha, da, da, da. So I kind of be left like still, well, what is this Dhamma thing? You know, so I get another book and I go through the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Same thing, a Buddha Dhamma. Yeah, I get that, but Dhamma, what is this Dhamma? You know, or Dharma, as they call it more in America, you know, the kind of Sanskrit. And so I really struggled with this because I wanted to intellectually understand, well, what is Dhamma? And there came a point in my life where I realized, well, this is not, it's not an intellect, it's not to be had intellectually. And so a wonderful mantra is when we, when, when we all chant 
the uh, attributes of the, the Dhamma, we say, Sanditiko Akaliko Ehi Pasiko Opaniko Pachatam. So Sanditiko is apparent here and now. What is apparent here and now? That's the Dhamma. Ajahn Sumedho, everybody knows, Lumpa Sumedho, of course, talk about the way it is. This is the way it is. So Sanditiko, the way things are here and now. Sanditiko Akaliko. Kali, Kaliko is, is time, Ak without time. So ageless or timeless or even eternal, I think it could be translated, Akaliko. So Dhamma is ageless, timeless, always there. Ehi Pasiko is, is, is like in, inviting, inviting one to come and see. Opaniko is like leading inwardly, and then Pachatang uh, is to be experienced individually by the wise. So nowhere in there is it like a description, like that's the Dharma, that's the Dharma. They're all like pointing, it's like the finger pointing at the moon. We look at the finger, but we need to look at the moon. We need to look further, or in this case, look deeper. So that Dhamma, in our true refuge, is always the way things are. How is it now? Not wanting to try to make it. Otherwise, being able to embrace and be in the moment. So taking refuge in Sanditiko, you know, what's apparent right now. You know, uh, Akaliko, which is timeless, ageless, you know, beyond is transient of all things. Um, uh, Opaniko, like leading us inwardly. Because all of us want to be led inwardly. We're so conditioned to be led outwardly. We look outward through the, through the eyes. We look outward through the door, of the, through the ears, the nose, the, uh, the tastes, and, 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 and tactile sensations. So everything is going, leads us outward, isn't it? And that's death. Death is constantly leading us outward. So in the sense realm, one could say that everything is, is, is that's, 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 the, that's death. That's not amaro, that's maro, that's mara, you know, that's death. So the amaro, the amara, amaravati, is the leading inwardly. So turning away from the senses, turning inward, looking inwardly, inward looking. And it's there where one can begin to discover uh, solitude, quietude, peacefulness, a place of true refuge. Because at least rationally we can argue that this body cannot be a refuge. It can be a refuge for a short time. It's a vehicle. We want to take care of it. Like I said, on the aging, we can, Ajahn Chah always used to give the analogy of the, of the glass. Like this is the broken glass. You know, you'd hold up a glass of water like this and this glass is broken. And people would look at him, you know, most of the monks would understand. But is there a crack there? Bagalao. need bagalao. This glass is broken. But don't break it. That's what he'd say. Don't break it. Take care of it. But it's already broken. But don't break it. So this is our bodies, really. It's his, his way of pointing to the analogy. So this is already dead. <laughs> so we're looking at a room full of skeletons, of corpses, you know, or, or, or the walking dead. <laughs> we
we are the walking dead. But that doesn't mean we're going to go around and kill each other now, or or miss or harm each other. We say, well, this is this is it's it's a it's a miserable existence, and so you know why bother? We said it's all dukkha anyway. Everything, everybody's suffering. Everything's suffering. You know, close, lock the doors. You know, bring in the gasoline. We got candles going here. Light it up, and you know, off we go. But that's not the idea. It's it's that it's that when I see this glass is already bo- broken, then when it does break or it cracks, so we can say for a lot of us here, I first noticed that the body was aging at thirty. I don't know about those in here that are thirty and above, but that's when I first noticed. I mean, not a big deal, but it's like, oh, there's an. In fact, I remember Ajahn Santachito sitting over here, my my brother and wonderful friend Stephen Saslam, spent many years together in Thailand and, and here in England. Uh, I remember we shared that because we're the same age within a few months. And I remember we shared that. I don't know if you remember that, Stephen. We shared about at 30. I remember this. I just The memory just came up. I said, yeah, we are getting a little older. You know, 30, big deal, you know. <laughs> but I just remember we shared that. I was like, yeah, yeah, I think that is. You know, so so we're like just grasping a little bit that it's changing. So now at 64, certainly for me, I mean, the glass, there's a lot of cracks in the glass. You know, the knees are cracked, the hips cracked, the back's cracked. And I don't mean like chiropractic, osteopathic crack. It's like cracked, hurt, painful, unpleasant. But it's still my responsibility to take care of it. And I think that brings up a, 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 a point. And I think it was brought up maybe in one of the notes we received. And I'll share something else uh, personal before I finish tonight. In 1986, we had done the retreat here in the early days of Amaramwate. We just finished the winter retreat, which I think we only did a month in those days. And then Ajahn Semeno offered me the, huh? A couple of months? I, I remember, whatever it was, we had finished that. I won't argue with you, Ajahn. You have the younger memory. Um, but he offered that I could go down to Chithurst and practice in the forest. And uh, says, so, yeah, you know, go out and be in the forest alone. They have these lovely uh, families at uh, Ash House. You know, they give you nice food. They take care of you. And, and so I, I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. So I went off. I was staying in the Hammerwood you know, down at Chithurst and going on alms round to Ash House. I don't know if there were any other places, but... Uh, we were very well looked after and with a lot of love and care. And so I'm enjoying my self-retreat after this community retreat. And so one day I'm sitting in my uh, kuti, and it was maybe mid, mid, mid-morning mid or something, or I'd just come back or just finished the meal, I don't remember exactly, but a monk comes out and kind of knocks on the door and he says, you know, Pabakro, he says, your sister's called from the States, some kind of an emergency. Okay, so I was in a pretty, uh, quite a good mind state for having done been, been on retreat and practice, and so right away I start thinking, of course, the worst. And my father was was um, he he fell asleep very easily; he could just fall asleep at the drop of a of a pin. And so my mother would not fall asleep, especially when he was driving, because she was too worried about him. You know, so his name was Norm, so she'd be Norm. Norm, you know. So I thought, well, Dad's fallen asleep at the wheel, and he's crashed and killed them both, or they had a terrible accident. 
So I get down, dial the numbers, and get my sister, and and uh, she said, uh, and I said, you know, she knew it was me, and it was her, and she said, Dad's killed himself. And I said, just like that, and she says, yeah, just like that. And uh, I don't think we shared much more. I said, I'll be there as soon as I can, and let and let you know. I came out of the office at Chitters. And Ananda was there, and, and, and Ananda kind of knew. He said, I think he said, too, I think, when do you need to go? He just kind of knew, and, or how can I help? When do you need to go? So, I mean, the community just rallied in, like, within, I think, that day. I think I had a flight, and I was on my way home. So I got there, and there was... Um, and I, I remained quite clear. It was It was... The space that I was in was good, and it's like I had prepared for it. I mean, I'd been chanting, like, you know, I'm of the nature to age, and the family, everybody's aging. So there was a certain preparation there, and I was able to be of great support and, and uh, for my, uh, console my mother and sister. And then we got the autopsy, and we weren't sure, but they definitely uh, um, determined it was a suicide. And... He'd been going through some severe states of depression, been taking medications and really struggling. And so he had just one Sunday afternoon, you know, taken a, a, a bottle of these medications. And my mother was out and she came back. He was sleeping, which he was doing a lot of, so she didn't really suspect anything. But then he started kind of making some funny noises. She called the, the emergency services and they came and then they find his bottle of pills and they're gone. So. Basically, they, they, they got him too late because these uh, meds were quite strong and they had been in his system too long to really do anything. So it wasn't until I got back here and over in that first, that's now that yellow, where I think, the yellow building, which is the uh, Uborn room, is it? Um, I, my room was on at the end there. And I got back and, of course, I'd be, I stayed a good month, maybe six weeks even, so I got back. And uh, there's always a having been there a long time, kind of adjusting and coming back. And so I'm in my room and just kind of being back, and then I'm alone, you know, really for the first time in many ways, to you know, and being back here. And then Ajahn Sumedho just knew Ajahn Sumedho came over, knocked the door, came in, and then of course the, the tears kind of came. So he was, he was so um, intuitively knew that, you know. I needed a friend. I needed support, and came and and uh, and supported me, and and uh, gave me the the kind of the love and the warmth that I, I needed. And so that's many years ago now, and yet I still feel I still feel sad. I've been through periods of anger and things, but the thing with suicide is is suicide is one of those things that um, uh, some of us, and I've certainly contemplated suicide, uh, most especially when I first left and. I don't want to go into those kind of stories right now. But suicide is really, Ajahn Chah, I remember, said one time, he says, well, you know, killing oneself is not that complicated. In other words, the, what, what, what the causes of it. He, said, he says, basically, death is more attractive than life. So think about it. it. It is. So life is so bad, I'm so miserable, that the alternative is like to not have life, death, is more attractive. Now, what I encourage each of you, and what I've contemplated uh, over the years, 
and is very interesting. So the first precept, you know, is, uh, you know, panadipata, to not harm any uh, living uh, being, you know, from ants and mosquitoes and human beings. So panadipata. But this doesn't include this. I have a right to murder or kill this. Think about it. Yet we have the delusion, one, one can have the delusion, that I have the right to take this life because it's my life to take. But is it? So that's a wonderful reflection to actually realize, well, I, I, really, I don't. And I don't know, I haven't read a lot, and I'm sure Ajahn at some point I, I'd, I'd welcome him to comment that, that I think it's one of the worst things that one can do is to actually take one's life. Not that you know, murder is any small small matter, but I think taking one's own life uh, because of the preciousness of it and, the, and it has a very deep karmic um, uh, uh, that goes with that. So, and it's, it's an incredibly selfish act, isn't it? And I don't criticize my father for being selfish, but selfish in the sense, if I'm going to kill myself and I can't, th- I'm really totally self-absorbed on, I'm absorbed and I want to kill this, this is me, and I'm not really, you know, everybody will just have to get along or I don't care, I just, I'm out of here. So one, one could also say, well, it's kind of the, the easy way out. But I don't want to make it like, you know, so much a judgment on it is like, that it happens, people do it, people will continue to do it. But for those of us that have been around it or have experienced it in things, to give it a bigger kind of container, that it is ultimately a selfish act, that really one has no right. But those of us that are left, especially if it's a loved one, like my father, or like if it's a husband, a wife, a child, or something like that, it's incredibly devastating so that it takes time to be able to grieve, to, to embrace what has happened. And I think a lot of forgiveness needs to happen around that as, as well. Because, um, especially if someone leaves and there's a lot of problems, then one is left, the, the remaining spouse or child or whatever, is left with all of these kind of loose ends. So I think it's very important to you know, reflect on that. And the mental state Obviously, people that, that do contemplate it and do have those thoughts, and I think, I don't know, but I think everybody has certainly had desperate moments. Now, how seriously uh, any one of you has, com- has considered suicide, I don't know. But I'm pretty certain that you've all had desperate thoughts. <laughs> i just like to be out of here, you know. But you're not seriously, but it's like, it's, you know, life can get bad sometimes. So to... to be able to have compassion and to, to um, our, our love and our kindness that we would share with those that have uh, done such an act. And, uh, to, and I think that's why in, in uh, Buddhist uh, Asian cultures that uh, at the uh, anniversary of the death of someone that they always do uh, make a merit. We were talking earlier in the Sangaru Mahajan about these like some of these extreme or these uh, uh, unexpected deaths, like the tsunami. I remember Ajahn Jamni, a well-known teacher, and uh, taught for a number of years in the States, and I used to go help him translate. He was uh, very busy psychically because there were all these lost souls after the tsunami in Thailand. 
And as the story goes, he could actually, it was, had the psychic ability to be able to come in and help some of these, these souls because it's like life is there and all of a sudden, bam. And that's why, like in Thailand, they, they put the body aside. They don't cremate it because they believe that, that, that and whether this is true or not, I have, I have no idea, but that it takes time for the, for the, 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 the rebirthing energy, as it were, to kind of realize what has happened, especially in an accident, a kind of a sudden death, to kind of realize what has happened. So they believe a year or so that they, uh, they, they have. And so um, that there are these realms that I truly believe are, are true. That, and I think ghost experiences and all that probably are related to that, where uh, people that have died in, in horrific ways or sudden ways or violent ways, that there's there's an energy that doesn't get resolved and can kind of get stuck. Um, and really brings up the whole idea around, you know, death and our relation to death and people having died and TV is the telly's full of programs these days, aren't they? Like the ghost hunters and the, you know, spirit, whatever, and they go out with cameras and all these things. I mean, people love this stuff. They do in the States. They probably do here too, all this kind of things trying to prove or take pictures and, and all of that. So I think that's adequate for this evening. I'd like to remind you, like I said last night, um, that uh, how many of you um, died with your last breath last night and how many of you remembered to be born with your first breath this morning or you're just remembering right now. Don't need to see your hands. So this is a, a, a great practice to, to do, to really, at the end of the day, you've kind of put everything down, washed your face, cleaned your teeth, whatever your preparation for bed, and when you lie down, you lie down alone, lie down mindfully and do your best to be with the body, just calming the body, calming the mind, be with the breath, and boop, you're gone. But also be ready, be prepared that it could be. We don't know. Gajan Chai used to live with this. He called him the Maina, you know, Ajahn Maina, which is teacher, teacher uncertain, un- uncertain teacher. You know, Ajahn Maina. Maina in Thai is like not sure. So he lived with this monk and he used to kind of laugh. He said, I used to live with this monk, you know, we were practicing in the forest for a while. And every time he asked him something, it was Maina, not sure. So he'd have his bathing cloth on his arm. Heading for the for the well to draw water to bathe. Are you going to bathe? My nah. You know, I'm not sure. Because <laughs> he didn't know that was his practice. That if he was going to actually make it to bathe, you know, he could he could kind of say, "Well, my intention is to walk to the bathe, you know, draw water and bathe." You know, but it was easier to just say, "My nah." When I get there, and it says, "Are you going to bathe?" and he's got the water drawn and everything, "My nah," until he actually gets a scoop of water and dumps it over his body. So he called him Ajahn, not not sure. <laughs> so, like in our society, if we say, "Well, I'll see you next week," if we say maybe, people look at us and like they're worried, aren't they? Well, what do you mean, maybe? Aren't you? Don't we have a date? Yes, but maybe. But we need to find another way of saying. It. But say, "Well, we're not sure," or we'll say. God willing, which I think is fair enough. In other words, if the conditions and everything, I think it's how people mean it. And I think that's a more accurate way of putting that. So put your heads down with peace and, and uh, quietness 
and the loving, warm uh, energy that has been so uh, abundant, or has been created and is so abundant in this wonderful setting that we have with this ancient tradition. Over 2,500 years, there's been people like you and I that have seen the value in this. People like, you know, Ajahn Amaro and the other monks and nuns that have seen it, that it's worthwhile to go forth, to shave their heads, to practice this. And here we are, we're inspired, we're uplifted, we want to be, we want to draw close to it. So, um, but continue to bring forth your energy to draw close to, to that, to your place of refuge, to contemplate the truth of our existence that we, we're talking about primarily on this retreat, and, and to draw and make it more and more real. And I, also, if you kind of open the heart and mind to the going to sleep, you might find some interesting dreams, too. I used, when I was a monk, not so much now, I used to have some incredibly uh, powerful dreams about practice and almost kind of like, not revelation, but kind of insights that had meaning. Because sometimes dreams can be so kind of convoluted and mixed up. And find when in, in an environment like this that you know, kind of pay attention, especially if you wake up before the bell or something, and kind of reflect for a little while, what have you been dreaming about? And, Oh, I've been chased by this guy with a big knife or something, and you know, <laughs> you know, from whatever. So, I'll leave it there and uh, offer this for your consideration for this evening. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm-hmm.